All right, tonight uh, we'll start with Luke. We'll have two weeks in Luke. And again, we're kind of looking at um, how the gospel writers portray or utilize the Old Testament in their story of Jesus. And, and for us, it's, it's a little hard because we've grown up for those of us who were in the grown up in the church and if you know what the phrase means then you know what what I'm saying for those of us who've got we've you know we've always been taught what Jesus is divine he's the son of god we've always been taught he's human we've we've been taught all of these stories so we we kind of take it for granted and and so we come into the new testament with a set of assumptions that are that are already there and we we don't have a national identity uh, we're we're americans but as far as having a, a national identity that um, kind of binds us all together uh, we're, we're we're a culture that is kind of a melting pot. All, all different cultures have come in, as opposed to the Israelites, where there is a national identity um, that, that they have. Um, we, we see Jesus as a king. That's hard for us, because we don't have a king. We recognize, okay, there's a king in, in England, but we don't have that... Um, presence of what does it mean to serve a king or what does it mean to to have a king so when we see Jesus as king we think okay ruler of my life but it, it just it's hard for us to kind of really grasp the just the power and the the significance of saying Jesus is a king so as we, as we go through this, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, okay, I'm trying to put myself back into uh, the readers, the original readers situation and go, they're being presented with this kind of real time. And so the, the gospel writers are, are in essence trying to build a case for what they believe. Luke is a, a historian, and we need to make sure we don't bring our definition of a historian and put it back onto Luke. For Luke to be a historian in that time, the assumption would be that Luke's all in. He believes everything he's writing, so he's writing from a very biased position. He, he, he believes this. This is not a recollection of facts to give us information about someone's life. This is somebody who is all in in what he believes, and he is now writing to convince you that what he believes is truth. So let's not think of Luke as an unbiased journalist, but let's think of him as very biased. He believes what he's writing, and he is wanting to convince you of those facts. He starts his gospel off, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. 
if we look at it in the New Living Translation, again, uh, maybe a little better uh, flavor of what we're seeing here. So many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. That's, that's a better representation of what Luke is saying. And as we went through Matthew, what did we see Matthew saying quite often? This was to fulfill what was written. And we know that fulfill doesn't necessarily mean accomplishing a predictive prophecy. Again, a predictive prophecy was Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. And he, and he was. But this is to, to, in essence, fulfill what Torah was saying, to complete what Torah was saying. He opens by telling his readers, and, and he says um, it's to Theophilus. Now let me set this stage here. One, I think, um, I think Luke is Jewish. Uh, there is some, some of who say he's not, base it on a Paul in writing uh, to maybe Galatians, Colossians, can't remember now, and he lists a few people and say these are of the circumcision, and then a couple verses later he lists Luke separately, and we kind of conclude, oh, if Luke was a Jew, then he would have put him in that list, and I'm going, really, I don't think we need to bind Paul into that, and besides, he could have been saying these three individuals who were preaching with me were Jews, but I also want to recognize Luke not preaching with me, but as a part of, of uh, the contingency who I'm around. Um, so I think the evidence of Luke being Gentile is less than the evidence of him being Jewish. Uh, as, we, um, as we read through Luke's gospel and we see the amount of Old Testament that he's bringing into it, it just makes more sense that a Jew uh, having that knowledge would bring that in. Um, also, he's writing to a Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus means friend of God or loved by God. Could Theophilus be a, a, an actual person? It could be. Many have speculated that maybe it's uh, someone in Rome or it's someone who's high up. Um, I'm leaning more towards Theophilus simply is a stand-in for those who are loved by God. It's his readers, it's his listeners who are friends of God, It's his, and I think his Jewish listeners. Um, because I'm going, well, why would Luke write something that is so heavily dependent upon an understanding of the Old Testament? Why would he write that to a Gentile who's most of it's going to go right over his head? That doesn't make as much sense as this being those who those Jews who are friends or loved by God and would be getting most of his references that he's going to use. Again, speculation, but it's speculation either way. Luke 1, 3. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, again, we look at that, we read that, and we see consecutive order. What's the first thing we think of? Oh, this is a chronological account of Jesus' life. Um, the RSV renders this right to you an orderly account. 
And that again, that that is capturing a little more the essence of what Luke is saying. Luke is writing an orderly account. And it is not a chronological order. It is more of a logical order. He's going to arrange things in a logical sequence to build his case as to Jesus being the Messiah. Is it generally chronological? Yes, he starts with his birth, he ends with his death. But in between, we don't need to try and force the events into a chronological order. It, in, in Luke's time, it was appropriate, if I take this event and this event, bring them all right here because that makes my point. That's acceptable. That was, that was just fine. Luke's writing to convince us of who Jesus is, not to just give us a historical account day one to the last day. And again, that's where we get into trouble when we try to harmonize the Gospels. Each Gospel writer was writing to their audience, and they were writing in order to tell the, a story of who Jesus is by using various allusions to Old Testament events and bringing in Jesus' events. And there was no attempt to say that these events had to be in chronological order. So when we try to harmonize the Gospels and, and, and shove things together, we're really not getting what the writers were trying to do. So let's just kind of, and that's where, you know, we get hit with all the Gospels have all these errors because this Gospel writer says this and this Gospel writer says that. No, it's, it's not an error. It's they were telling the story for a purpose. And the way we should interpret that is, okay, well, why would Matthew be recounting it this way and Luke recounting it another way? What, what emphasis did each of them have to create that, that distinction? Um, so Luke 130, uh, the angel Gab Gabriel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So each of the gospels have started out by giving us an identity of who Jesus is. And what do we see in Luke's gospel? What identity is he starting off with? It's in bold, just to help out. David. Throne of David. So David and then Jacob. Again, going back to the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. So right off we're seeing that Luke is saying, here's a king. He is from the lineage of David, and he's also with Jacob. Why is that important? Again, we, we've been to this passage before with the other Gospels. Just again, re review this a little bit. 2 Samuel verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, you know, I took you from the pasture, uh, following the sheep to be my ruler, we continue on. Uh, when your days are complete, you lie down. I'll raise up your descendants after you who come 
forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Again, we know Solomon does that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So Luke is tying Jesus in to this statement here that Samuel makes, that Jesus is a part of the royal lineage of David. He is, he is rightly to be the king of Jews uh, because this was promised to David. And again, we've noticed the term uh, that he's going to be a son to me. So son of God typically is referring to Jesus as an earthly title referring to his kingship. We typically interpret it as a divine title. That's not wrong. But we're adding in another layer when we read of how we can see that term. And what we'll notice is that as we've come through Matthew, what did we see Matthew doing? Matthew would say, oh, this was to fulfill what Isaiah said, or this was to fulfill what Jeremiah said. So Matthew kind of put it up in bright lights for us. Let us know, here's the Old Testament passage. Here's where you go to find it. Here's how it's applied. Uh, Luke again, Luke's not going to do that. So Luke references this passage, but he doesn't clarify it for us. And quite frequently, Luke is going to put the Old Testament references into the words of other people. So for Luke, most of the time we're going to see our references or allusions to the Old Testament through what someone says, as opposed to a parenthetical statement that Matthew might would make. So Luke 1.19, the angel answered him, said to him, Zacharias, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I've been speak, sent to speak to you. Luke 1, 26, six month, the angel Gabriel was sent from a city of Galilee to, to, of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose, uh, whose name was Joseph. How, what does Luke add in here? Who is Joseph? Of the descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So again, we're seeing this... this um, continue to be pressed for us that Jesus is of David his lineage is of David it's interesting that he has Gabriel doing uh, the announcing Gabriel is found in Daniel and what is Gabriel's role if we look at what Gabriel does in the Old Testament uh, what does he do for Daniel it says and he called out and said Gabriel give this man understanding of the vision chapter 9 um, while I was still speaking in prayer then the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering he came he gave me instruction and talked with me and said oh Daniel I have now come forth to give you insight and instruction so we see it looks like Gabriel's role is giving instruction giving insight being in response to prayer so as we look back to the New Testament now, we have a little better understanding of who Gabriel is and why he is sent to speak to Zacharias and to Mary. Western Union. Uh, uh, yeah, a little, little more reliable. <laughs> So 
So Mary, after, again, still in Luke 1, Mary, after receiving the news, we have Mary's psalm. We, we, we call it the Magnificat. Um, and, and we sing this, don't we? You know, we, we sing it in four parts, and we, we kind of all sing our parts together. So we're familiar with the Magnificat. And as we look through it, we see first, my soul exalts the Lord. Uh, my spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. Verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. What did we see in Matthew? What was the emphasis in Jesus' life and what he was saying? As we as his disciples, what should we be showing to others? Mercy. We see several times, I desire mercy opposed to sacrifice. So this concept of mercy is still going to come through with Luke. Uh, verse 51, he's done his mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. So we see the, the mighty being brought down, the humble being lifted up. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of, again, his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So we're, we're, man, we're seeing a lot of stuff come in that we've, we've been seeing. How we're referencing back to Abraham, the, the covenant with Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all nations. So as we, as we think about Mary's song, any, anything in the Old Testament that we remember that we might compare this to? We think. Oh, all right. Alan gets the Snickers bar. Second Samuel or First Samuel two one. I didn't bring a Snickers bar. I'm sorry. I'll have to. Some. Maybe I need to do that. Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted." in the Lord. Come down to verse 4. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. What are we seeing? The mighty are brought down, the humble are brought up. But those who were hungry cease to hunger. Verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. I want to pause there just a second. Any bells ringing with that? Again, we'll stay in Luke, but if we go to Acts 2, we like Acts 2. What does Peter say? Peter quotes from Psalm 16 and says, You will not allow your Holy One to remain in Hades and see decay. Well, when we look at the Septuagint, and we see Sheol here when the Septuagint, the Greek version, we're going to see Hades. And what does Peter say right after that? He says, Peter quotes Psalm 16, you're not allow your Holy One to stay in Hades. Peter says what? But God has raised up Jesus. Where'd Peter get that idea that someone could go down to Sheol or Hades and then be raised up? That's not a new concept, because that's this in the psalm, the song of Hannah here. 
So she presents this concept that eventually we're going to see Peter reference and Jesus, in essence, fulfill. We keep reading. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And then uh, come down to the end. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And again, we've been saying in the Old Testament, anointed is Messiah. Messiah is Christ. Those three terms are synonymous. When we look to Psalm 113, there the psalmist praise the Lord, praise, O servants of his Lord. We come, when we come down to verse 6 or 7, what do we see? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Continue on. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. What did the psalmist do? Psalmist went back to Hannah's song, lifted those that those that what's in green directly from from Samuel, talks about a barren woman again going back to Hannah, and then talking about uh, praising the Lord. What we see is that Psalm one thirteen is a part of the Hallel songs or the praise psalms, and Psalm one thirteen to Psalm one eighteen were generally called the Egyptian Hillel songs because they, they referenced the Exodus. We've seen again how Exodus is such a seminal event. And then Psalms 120 to 135 are, as would be the great Hillel. And those would be sung as people were heading up to Jerusalem. So the Egyptian Hillel was typically sung uh, at the time of Passover, so the spring. The great Hillel at the time now fall for the Feast of Tabernacles as they're going up to Jerusalem. So we have these two great um, Hillel sections in Psalms. What's in between those two? We said to 118 and then we said 120. Those who do the math. Psalm 119. What does Psalm 119 do? It's the big one, right? It's the one we all have memorized. It talks about the beauty of the law of the Lord. So between these two great praise sections, we have the beauty of Torah uh, sandwiched in between. So what we've seen then is that, um, I'll just go through here. Yeah, Hillel means praise. Again, the Egyptian, they, again, if we see, again, these, they come, the coming out of Egypt, dividing the sea, giving the law, resurrecting the dead, the lot of the Messiah. So we're seeing, in essence, when we read Mary's psalm and Mary's song, we should be seeing Hannah's song right alongside it. So the way we sing Magnificat with the alto and the tenor, all four of those coming together, that's how we read this here with Mary and Hannah. We see both of those psalms coming in together, and, and that's where the beauty comes in. Luke 155. Uh, again, this is how, how Mary closes that. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants uh, forever. So that's how Mary is concluding hers. And again, we're going back to Genesis 12, where God tells Abram, I'm going to make you, you're going to be a blessing, 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we're still seeing Luke very early in his gospel hint that the Gentiles will be included in this coming kingdom of Jesus. And again, we see this again in chapter 22, uh, where it says, in, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Acts 2.38, we're familiar with this one. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Where's Peter getting his? He's getting it from this Abrahamic blessing. So that's where we're seeing again Luke. We're still Acts is Luke also. So we're seeing this tying in. Malachi 4 5. We've been here with, with some of the others. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So that's, we're kind of reminding ourselves of what Malachi says. Now we're back to Luke. The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the, the angel. The angel said, don't fear Zacharias. Um, and then he starts telling him about uh, the son that he's going to have. Verse 16, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, we're seeing where, where is Luke quoting from? He doesn't tell us. The New American Standard hints for us because they put it in all caps. That was the publisher trying to say, here's a hint. But that's leading us back to Malachi 4.5 so that we know who John the Baptist is. Luke 3.4, it is as it is written. Again, we're talking about John the Baptist here. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, one of the few times that Luke actually identifies his resource. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, mountain he will be brought low, uh, the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now we saw this in Mark when we opened with our Mark passage. So let's just look at the comparison between Mark and how Luke presents this. At times we think Mark, Luke may have had Mark as a reference. Um, so you can see that Mark's presentation is very, uh, in essence, just the one verse. Luke has expanded that a little more. If we, are, if we go to the passage in Isaiah 40, we're seeing where the two line up where Mark and Luke line up with Isaiah. You can see um, Luke actually comes all the way down to verse 5, and where he's saying all flesh will see it together, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Again, what are we, what are we seeing in this hint? Who is included in the salvation? Is it just the Jews? No. 
It is the Jews and and the Gentiles. Um, so it, again, we're seeing this inclusion that's rated here. We know that John the Baptist fulfills the role of Elijah as the forerunner. He is not Elijah, but he is the one to come before and prepare the way. Elijah is also used as a prophet, a mighty prophet. He was one of the mighty prophets of the Old Testament. So it is not unlikely that Jesus may be compared to Elijah. So what we want to see is how is Jesus compared to Elijah? How do we see him in that? Luke 4.24 um, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in the days of Israel, in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years, six months, a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them uh, in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So he's not, Luke is not going to be saying that Jesus is Elijah or Elisha, but there are going to be similar works that they are going to perform. We know the story here, Luke 7. He went to see, Jesus goes to Nain. Uh, there's a widow coming out. Uh, notice what it says in verse 12. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Sizable crowd from the city was with her. Jesus says, don't weep. Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man got up, began to speak. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Um, that's Luke 1. So that's okay. So it says what? Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying what? A great prophet has arisen among us. Why would they say a great prophet has arisen among us? What would, cause, what would trigger that reaction? Well, if we go to a um, couple of things. The only son of a mother, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. When we go to 1 Kings 17, how do we see the account of Elijah with the woman here. What is, how does it define her? She is a widow. And the son of the mother, he was the only son. And Elijah, what, lays on him, heals him. What does it say that Elijah did? Gave him back to his mother. What does Jesus do? Give him back to his mother. So all of these are references that tie Jesus back to Elijah. So why would the people why would people think a prophet has arisen? Well, he did the same thing. Okay, it's it's the same in essence the same story. The difference is what though? Jesus just speaks the word. Um, whereas Elijah calls upon him. So when we get to Luke um, we move further on in Luke in chapter 9. Herod the Tetrarch heard what all was happening. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared. Why would they think Elijah had appeared? Well, the miracle was the same that Elijah had done in the city of Nain. And then again, 
It happened while he was praying with the disciples, and he questioned, who do people say I am? They answered, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. So we see Jesus being thought of by the people as Elijah because of the works that he had been doing. Transfiguration. Um, Eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, James, and John, went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. He became, clothing became white and gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared um, in glory, were speaking of his departure, what we was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So it's no wonder that, um, again, the disciples are thinking of Jesus in the lineage of Elijah. Second Kings 1, verse, chapter 1. King sent a captain of 50, went up to Elijah, said, Man of God, come down. Elijah said, If I'm a man of God, what? Let fire come down and consume you and your 50. What happened? Fire came down and consumed him and his 50. The next guy comes, says the same thing. Man of God says what? Let fire come down from heaven, consume you and your 50. Third guy learned his lesson. He was a little more humble about the approach. Um, But we see this event from the life of Elijah. In Luke, what do we see? They were traveling. uh, You know, Jesus is traveling. The Samaritans did not receive him. What does James and John say? Lord, you want us to command fire to come down and consume them. What are they thinking? <laughs> They're thinking Elijah. I mean, that was exactly what Elijah um, did. So that's where James and John are getting this phrase here. That's why they're asking Jesus to do this, because they view him in the lineage of Elijah. And what does Jesus say? No. What's Jesus saying? I'm not like that. I may be similar to Elijah, but I am greater than Elijah. 1 Kings 19, again. Um, He departed. He found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. He was the 12th. Elijah passed over him, threw his mantle on him. He left his oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Elijah says what? Okay, go do that. Ringing any bells, as we're kind of thinking now. Someone said, I want to follow you. Jesus said, um, birds of the air, foxes have holes, birds have the nest. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Another said, follow me. First, let me go and bury my dead. Jesus says what? No. Allow the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus says what? No. Don't, the, 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 the one who has put his hand to the plow and looking back uh, is fit for the kingdom of God. So we see, again, a similarity, but Jesus is giving us a difference from what we had with Elijah and just the radical call that Jesus has to follow him um, and how different that was in what we saw with Elijah. When he approached Jerusalem, Luke 19, 
Jesus saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even the things which make for peace, by now uh, they have been hidden from your eyes. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. What do we see in Elisha? Then Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You will surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily upon him till he was ashamed, and what? The man of God wept. So as Jesus wept for Jerusalem, we see Elisha weeping in this case. Again, just the similarity of the instances. Luke 23. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. We're, we're again, we're at the end of Jesus' life. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. It's the phrase perverting our nation, troubling our nation. When Ahab, back to 1 Kings, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? When we look in the Septuagint, again the Greek version, we see these two phrases as being identical. And what we see is Elijah says, I'm not the one who have troubled or perverted Israel, but you have. Uh, you and your father's house because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord. So when the, when the people are accusing Jesus of perverting Israel, what is it that they have actually done? according to how Elijah is phrasing this. They are the ones who are actually perverting Israel. So the leaders, those who are accusing Jesus, they're the ones actually guilty of the perversion, not Jesus. And that's, that's the story that Luke wants us to recall when we see this event in Jesus' life. So we've talked about Jesus as being like Elijah, but greater than Elijah. We will also see that Jesus is like Moses, but greater than Moses. What event do we associate Moses with? The Exodus. Okay? Again, we just we have to keep that in our mind. As we read through the Gospels, Exodus should, should kind of always be in our mind. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's chosen people. We just saw this verse a moment ago. Um, and it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah who were appearing in his glory. We're speaking of his departure. And departure is, uh, this is the New American Standard Version. And that's the term we use. Okay? If we look at the complete uh, Jewish Bible, here's how it renders it. They appeared in glorious splendor and spoke of his exodus, which he was soon to fulfill in Jerusalem. I can kind of get this one on my own, right? When I see Moses talking about his exodus, I get the hint there. And this is where we, 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 we look at translations and how, how translations really, it, it's a struggle. How would we best translate this term? In the Greek, the term is exodus. Okay? It's where we get our term, Exodus. right? Just straight bringing it over from Greek. But we don't talk that way, do, do we? We don't go, okay, what time does your plane Exodus? Okay? It's not our English. We say, what time does your plane depart? So the translators now, okay, they've got a decision to make. Do I use the term 
departure because that conveys more the meaning? Or do I use the term exodus? Well, it's going to be a little harder to understand, but it, it keeps the connection to the Old Testament, to, to that linkage that the author intended. So reading different translations can give us at times insight into some of the words and how translators um, use this. And so we bring this up again just to kind of say it's, it's hard for us sometimes to see the connections just because of the way the words have been translated um, in, in our Bibles. Um, seeing Moses and departure, maybe I can get there. But seeing Moses and Exodus, I can get there. And I can see that connection. So that, again, brings in this whole story of Exodus and what Jesus is, um, how he is a redeemer. Luke 12, 35, uh, Jesus is saying, um, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Again, that's the New American Standard. Luke 12, 2, in the Revised Standard, again, we says, Fear not, flock, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give alms, provide for... Uh, yourselves with purses that do not grow old, grow old. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Revised Standard renders this, let your loins be girded and your lamps be burning. Again, I don't talk that way. We don't go into our kid's room and say, hey, you guys' loins girded. <laughs> and I certainly am not going to stand at the bottom of the stairs, holler up to the wife and say, yeah, are your loins girded yet? Huh? That's not going to go. We don't have stairs, so that's good. <laughs> it's not going to go over well, right? What do we say? Are you guys dressed yet? That's how we talk. But what that does is it loses the connection to the Old Testament. What are we going back to with this phrase? Anybody? Yeah, it's an easy answer most of the time. We're going back to Exodus, right? Exodus 12, what does Moses say? In this manner you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So we see this again. We, we've got this story of Exodus running through the Gospels that the, each writer wants to bring uh, home to us. Yeah. The, the image that comes to my mind is the father and the prodigal son. The father lifts up his robe, whatever, and runs. Right. You know, as readiness. Mm-hmm. You know. No, very good. Very good. Uh, Luke 14. Um, it happened he went to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. Uh, we get down to verse, um, Jesus spoke. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They kept silent. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him on his way. He said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could make no reply to this. So what has Jesus done to kind of tick them off? He's healed on the Sabbath. Okay? So for the Pharisees, that's, you know, you're doing work now on the Sabbath. Sabbath is what we, is, is the greater law. What does Jesus appeal to? One, it's kind of mercy if we were to kind of put that into place, but he's appealing back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your brother's donkey or ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely lift them up again. 
what is Jesus saying? He is, he is interpreting Torah and saying, look, if we're going to be gracious enough to an ox or a donkey, shouldn't we be more gracious to a fellow Israelite? It doesn't make sense that you would care more for an ox than you would for a fellow Israelite. So he's simply taking Torah and applying it to a situation, and that's why they could not make a reply to that. Jesus in the wisdom literature, Luke 14, he, he spoke a parable to them. We, we know the parable. Um, he noticed how people picking out the, the best seats uh, Steve got here first, so he got the best seat tonight. Because when you're invited, don't take the place of honor for someone more distinguished may come in and you get bumped down and that's embarrassing. You lose some honor that way. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We look at that and we go, okay, that's a nice story from Jesus. I get it. I understand that. Thing is, it's not a new story. When we look in, pro in um, Proverbs, what does the Proverbs tell us? Do not claim honor in the presence of a king. Do not stand in the place of a great man, for it's better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Jesus is not giving us new stuff. He's taking what's already in Torah and presenting it to them and saying, here's how Torah is to be lived out. So we're going we're gonna to stay with this theme here for the remainder. And that is Jesus and Torah. Torah, again, is going to be predominantly meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. It can mean the entire Old Testament. Um, I want to use that term rather than law because law is, very, is more of a restrictive term. comes with some baggage for us. We are a legal society. We are based on laws. And Torah is bigger than that. It is more God's advice, God's wisdom, God's direction. Um, the, the manner in which God would have us live. So we, must, we need to think beyond just laws when we think of Torah. Um, so Luke 14, 12. Uh, he also went on to say to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives. Um, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they have no means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Where is he getting that? Deuteronomy 14.28. Again, we're going to see Deuteronomy a lot. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of the produce. 29. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you. The alien, the orphan, the widow, who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in order. Why? That the Lord may bless you. So what is Jesus doing? He is interpreting Torah and saying, here's how it should be lived out. This parable here of, of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, Luke 16. There was a rich man, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Poor man named Lazarus was where? Laid at his gate, that's important, covered with sores, longing to be fed, another key phrase with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. So they both die. Uh, they're carried away to Sheol, or again, we see in 23, Hades, Sheol, same thing uh, that we talked about earlier. 
Uh, the rich man uh, lifted up his eyes. doesn't mean he's looking up. It means he's looking out. Um, it says of Abraham that when Abraham was getting close to Mount Moriah, Abraham lifted up his eyes to see it. We would lift up our eyes to see Pike's Peak. Uh, that's, that's the connotation there. I uh, saw Abraham... And he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus. We, we know this, um, kind of the story here. So we, we ask ourselves, okay, why, why does it seem Lazarus is in a better place than the rich man? What was so wrong that the rich man did that he would be in this gulf separated from Abraham? Notice that's that separation from Abraham. What did he do? Well, if we look back to Deuteronomy, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns, verse 8, you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need. Um, your eye, uh, again, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward their poor brother and you give him nothing that he may cry against the Lord to you. It will be a sin in you. Verse 11, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Does that ring a bell from anything? Again, New Testament, what does Jesus say? The poor you'll always have with you. You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to the needy and poor in the land. What was the problem with the rich man? Was the rich man following this? No. How do we know? Lazarus was at his gate longing to be fed just the crumbs and the rich man did nothing. That was his sin. He was not following Torah in how he treated his brother. And back to the parable. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. What is Jesus saying? Look, Moses and the prophets are sufficient evidence of me as the Messiah. And does this actually happen? Yes. When Jesus is raised from the dead, many still did not believe. So Jesus is foreshadowing what's going to happen um, after his resurrection. We see Luke emphasizing um, obeying Torah or being living in alignment with Torah all through his gospel. And what we're going to do is kind of very quickly just go through some of these, in essence, just so that we're aware of why Luke is presenting some of these portraits and why he's commenting on some of these acts or what people do. And that's because he's wanting to lay a groundwork that says Torah is still important. Jesus has not come to wipe out Torah. He is coming to interpret it properly and that the, the obedience to Torah is important. So how does he characterize um, Zacharias and his wife? Zacharias is a priest. His wife is a daughter of Aaron. And what does it say about them? They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord.
What do they do? Luke 1, 59. It happened on the eighth day. They came to circumcise the child, John the Baptist. And they were calling to call him Zacharias. Why is that important? What does Luke 12, uh, Leviticus 12 say? We're back to Leviticus, so we get some of our Leviticus passages in. Leviticus says what? Um, when a woman gives birth, bears a male child, she'll be unclean for seven days. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. What did Zacharias do? They followed Torah in the uh, circumcision of John the Baptist. It says, for John, he, John will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. Deuteronomy 10, um, he spoke to Aaron. Again, this is to the priest. John the Baptist is born to a priest. What does it say about the priest? Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you when you come to the tent of meeting. Uh, Luke 2, we're talking about Joseph and Mary. It is important for Luke to let us know how do Joseph and Mary respond to Torah? What do they do when the eighth day passed before circumcision? So he is being circumcised, Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day according to uh, Torah. When the days of her purification were, uh, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him up to Jerusalem. And uh, as it is written on the Lord, again, Luke kind of gives us this hint, every firstborn male <coughs> that opens the womb shall be called holy, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So when we see this sacrifice, we're again going back to Leviticus. What is Leviticus verse 8? We'll get to that. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering, the other for the sin offering. What does this tell us about Mary and Joseph? They were poor. They could not afford the lamb sacrifice for Jesus. So according to Leviticus, again, following Torah, Mary and Joseph offered the two turtle uh, uh, young pigeons. What does it say of their of their character? Mary and Joseph did what? Went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. All of these accounts are to show us that Jesus was grounded firmly in Torah. It was important in his family and in his extended family. How do we see Jesus in Torah as Jesus lives out his life? Um, a man covered with leprosy. Jesus heals him. And what does Jesus tell him to do? Go show yourself to the priest. Make an offering just as Moses commanded. Moses commanded it where? Back in Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. So Jesus is e expecting those around him to follow Torah. Young lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question. Kind of a big one. Where does Jesus point him? He says what? What is written? What? Torah has that answer. We can find this answer in the writings of Moses. And again, we see, you shall love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Has, uh, that's, what the, that's what the young man answered him. So Jesus says, well, 
what do you think? What's written? The guy gives him the right answer, doesn't he? This is not Jesus responding. This is the lawyer responding. So what does that tell us? That tells us that there was an understanding among the Jews of what the greatest commandments were. So it's not a new teaching that Jesus is giving. It's already there. Later on in Luke, we get the same question. A ruler questioned him, saying, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. You know the commandments. What's he saying? You know Torah. So he lists them off. Don't commit adultery, murder, steal, false witness, honor your father and mother. I've kind of numbered them for us. The guy says, well, I've kept all of these. Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, go and sell. You shall have treasure. Come and follow me. What does this guy do? He doesn't. Why doesn't he? Look at the commandments. What's missing when Jesus recounts this? This is a test here. I understand one, two, three, four, Sabbath, no idols, keep my name holy. What's missing on the, on the back end here? You can do the math. Number 10. What's number 10? You get the other Snickers bar. But you cannot covet Alan's Snickers bar. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, do not covet, does he? He leaves that one out. This guy says, all of these... Five through nine, I've kept. Why does he go away sorrowful? Probably because he's got an issue with number 10. And so Jesus is calling us to, um, to follow Torah. He makes this hard statement, does he? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own um, father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. New teaching? Well, let's go back. Exodus 32. Moses stood at the gate of the camp. Again, this is after the golden calf. Moses has been up, got the two tables of stone from God's hand, comes down. We've got Aaron building the golden calf. People are worshiping that now. This is what Moses says. Whoever's for the Lord come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered together, said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Ever you shall put his sword upon his thigh, go back and forth. Uh, from the gate to the camp, kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 were killed. We're going to jump just for a second. What happens in Acts? How many? What God took away, God eventually restored. And yes, this is a direct Luke's reference to about 3,000 saved is a direct reference back to this event here. Were there 3,000? That's not the point. It's to reflect us back to this event. Deuteronomy 33, of Levi he said, let your Thuman and your Urim belong to your godly man whom you proved at Massa, whom, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I did not consider them. So Jesus is calling us to the same commitment that the Levites had 
when they were called to, to kill their brothers and sisters because of the golden idol. And that's why we see Peter responding in Luke 22 when Jesus is about to be arrested. When those around him saw what was happening, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them, before Jesus answers, goes ahead and does that. But Jesus says what? No. And he what? Healed him. Jesus' ministry is not one of the sword. It is one of healing. So we are warned of the uprising at Mount Sinai, but we are not to follow that. We are to be one, we are to follow that of what Jesus says uh, be that of healing. Final point, and we're at time a little over. Final point here. On the cross, Jesus says this, what? But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That second part's important. How did Jesus view those who had sentenced him to crucifixion? Well, in Numbers 15, we see this. If one sins unintentionally, the priest shall make atonement for him. What does that mean? If you sin unintentionally, there's forgiveness. But the person who does anything defiantly, his guilt will be upon him. So what does Jesus say to God? He says, well, look, Father, this is not intentional. If they were doing this intentionally, we couldn't forgive them. So what those who have delivered me up for crucifixion, the, it's, it's unintentional. That's why Jesus could pray, forgive them. And what do we see in Acts? Peter says what? I know you acted in ignorance, but the things which God announced beforehand, what? By the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That brings us right back to where we started several weeks ago in Luke, that when Jesus was with the two disciples, what does he say? He says that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them. Peter's just kind of piggybacking on this. So that's, that's our introduction here to Luke and how we're seeing this. Next week, we'll go through Luke a little more. We're going to see how Luke responds to Jesus as David and, and see some more of that royal lineage there. So again, thank you everyone for being here and hope you have a good rest of the week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.